Hello, and welcome to another episode of Media Industry Conversations. I'm your host, Kyle Rather. This speaker series was developed as a part of a course in the Department of Radio, Television, and Film at the University of Texas at Austin. Students hear from industry professionals who talk about their experiences, knowledge, and thoughts on the changing media landscape. This week's guest is David W. Higgins. He's a writer and producer whose credits include the movie Hard Candy, the cult horror film The Damned, and the 2000 comedy hit Big Mama's House. Today, he runs an independent film company, Launchpad Productions. Higgins describes how he climbed the ladder from graduating at the University of Texas to working as an assistant at the Writers and Artists Agency, and then for Brian Grazer and Ron Howard's Imagine Films. He describes the way film writing and production has changed and the new opportunities emerging in the media industry. He spoke on February 21st, 2017 on the UT campus, and the conversation was hosted by director, producer, and RTF lecturer, Micah Barber. Okay, I think we're going to get started. We have a pretty full house today. Welcome. Uh, I'm Elisa Perrin. I'm one of the co-organizers of this series, Media Industry Conversations, along with my colleague Cindy McCreary. Uh, thank you all for coming. I want to first of all thank Richard Lewis for inviting in our guest today, David Higgins, and also thank our graduate student assistants, uh, Erica Apollo, Laura Felshow, Tim Piper, and Kyle Rather. In addition, I want to thank uh, RTF faculty and staff, including our chair, Paul Steckler, for supporting this, as well as our fabulous uh, Alana Wakeman, who does all the website design and marketing, and the Moody College of Communication, uh, in particular, Dean Bernhardt and Mike Wilson, Dean Mike Wilson. So thank you for that. And you can follow us on Twitter, if you want, uh, at RTFMIC. And check out upcoming speakers on our website. We have a couple more coming up this semester. Uh, but now let's get to the introductions. Uh, so we have here uh, David Higgins, who has a breadth of experience in both independent and more studio-based projects as a producer, an executive, and as a writer. Uh, one of our own RTF graduate, yay, uh, about, we won't say how long ago. <laughs> you can narrate that for us. Thank you, all right. Um, and he began his career, and I'm sure we'll hear more about this today, as an assistant uh, at Writers and Artists Agency, as well as at uh, Imagine Entertainment and then moved on to be an executive. And his roles include uh, working at Sobini Pictures as a development and production executive, Rand Development and Production. Mm -hmm. um, and also then, and into the present, runs Launchpad Productions. Uh, some of his credits include the indie film Hard Candy, uh, The Damned, uh, and Big Mama's House One and Two. Yay! <laughs> quite, quite the breath. A little bit of everything. A little bit of everything. So hopefully we'll be hearing about a little bit of right. everything today. And I see that you've been writing several projects mm -hmm. as well. Uh, so with that, uh, hopefully our discussion today will range from his career trajectory, uh, dating from the time as a student at UT Austin to his perspectives on the craft of writing and producing. Uh, and where things are going in the industry these days. And I want to thank our host, Micah Barber, who is a lecturer in RTF and also a director and producer as well. So with that, welcome and thank, thank you. you All right, hello, welcome everyone. 
Uh, we're very fortunate to be with David today. Uh, he flew in just for this, and uh, we're lucky to have his, his time. Yeah. Um, and thank you, thank you for the turnout, and uh, Professor Schott, Professor Steckler, I'm like, I'm, this is great. I'm like old home week for me here. <laughs> awesome. So thank and you for coming out. For those of you who are, are trying to pack in the doors, don't, don't be shy. Come on up here if you'd like to. You can sit up front and get a seat if you're looking for a place to sit. Um, so welcome. We're going to start just by asking David some questions uh, about where he's at right now, some things that he's doing, and then we're going to sort of go back in time and and try and, and sort of dig into how he got his start and look at how uh, some, some lessons that maybe are applicable to us, to those of us who are interested in pursuing this industry in the room. So uh, first of all, David, one question that is sometimes asked, you have a, you've got a lot of titles. You uh, work mm -hmm. as a producer, you work as a writer, you've worked as an executive, mm -hmm. um, you run a company. Can you tell us a little bit, um, how, do you, how do you describe yourself? What kind of development do you do? Um, I, I do what's called very intense hands-on development. So and that's, I, I came up, and we'll talk about this a little bit, but the people I came up with under Brian Grazer, under Mark Gordon, David Friendly, were all very hands-on development-oriented people, which is really that idea of, taking a script or taking an idea or a one line or a remake or anything and figuring out you know, what you can do with that today. Um, so I've always been very interested in starting from you know, scratch, sometimes with literally the bare idea, sometimes with a piece of source material, and then finding a writer who finds that, shares that vision with me. Um, or sometimes you're finding a writer who has the kernel of a vision and you're developing it with them. But by development, we really mean that idea of like you're working hands-on with the writer um, which is a very laborious process because it can be stops and starts, but a lot of what I do is, is the very creative side of working with writers and then eventually directors then eventually you know, the cast as well. So a, tr a true producer, uh, seeing things <laughs> all the way through start to mm -hmm. finish. Um, can you tell us a little bit about these collaborators? Can you tell us how you, how do you find writers? Do you have key collaborators you like to work with? Mm -hmm. uh, and also in development, are there key collaborators you like to work with? I think I've, I've been lucky pretty much that every writer I've worked with would work with me again. The downside has been if it's been a very successful collaboration, they don't have to work with me because they can get paid a lot of money to work with other people. <laughs> um, as an independent producer, you never have a lot of money, so I've broken a lot of writers who've gone on to get nice studio gigs. Um, which sometimes benefits me when I can then bring them a studio idea and we can take it from there. But you tend to work with, a lot of the way I approach it is every writer, the, the nature of a writer is you have to be writing every single day. Um, and you have to just keep creating material and that's, you know, whether that's one screenplay a year or 10 screenplays a year, you have to be creating material all the time. And so a lot of what I do is find an idea that interests me, I research it, I break it down, I sometimes write my own treatment, but then I'll go to a writer and say, in essence, look, I've got this idea, if you think this could be a movie, if you think it's better than some of the other ideas you have you know, sitting down right in front of you, let's work together on it and, and you know, do it together. And the benefit for a writer is, is so much of writing, as I'm now finding out uh, on my own, is you do sit by yourself in a room trying to make decisions and you hope they're the right decisions. And working with a you know, production exec, development, producer, whatever, early on at least gives you that idea of, okay, there's somebody else in the room so I'm not in a vacuum. And a lot of writers find that preferable um, to, again, just sitting there by themselves for six months and trying to come up with something. Great. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about, um, you know, it's, it's interesting that whole process requires a lot of a producer, right? Mm -hmm. So um, being a creative, uh, also sort of having your finger on the pulse of, well, you know, where's this going to go? Where's, mm -hmm. What's a good home for this? Right. What's a good form for this? Um, can you tell us sort of about your skill set and and how it how it's evolved? 
Right. Um, the skill set of a producer is is uh, hard to define because every producer approaches it differently. Um, I always tell people producers seldom get movies made. Movies come together because there is an element that somebody wants to that that means the movie you know has life, and that sometimes that's the financing, sometimes it's the director, uh, often it's the actor. Very seldom it's a writer, but possibly. But there's only about ten producers in Hollywood that get movies made because they're attached to them. Um, it just doesn't. It just doesn't really matter who you are as a producer. I always tell people the life uh, of a producer is a little bit like, and here's a classic movie for you guys. If you've ever seen the movie Splash, there's a great line at, mm. towards the end where he, a guy says, it's great that you found a, a mermaid. Now run along and find a unicorn. <laughs> and that's kind of what being a producer is. You get you know, that one or two days of like, wow, your movie's great. It opened well. So what else you got? Um, and so that's you're kind of always trying to generate that next thing, come up with new material. Uh, so for me, it's, it's really a having probably 20 things in development at any given time, uh, which requires a certain amount of ADD, I think high-function ADD, to kind of keep all those balls in the air and everything. But it is a different skill set. I mean, directors have to be able to focus on one thing for 18 months of their life or longer to really see the vision for a movie through from start to finish, and that's a long process. And writers usually need to be able to focus on one project, maybe two projects at a time. But as a producer, if you're just doing one or two projects at a time, you're kind of, you know, sinking yourself. It's, it's, you know, your odds are always, you know, one in ten things you're developing might get made. And so if you've got 20 things going, you're like, all right, I think two of these can get made. Um, I think to go to your question, I, what I've learned in the time I've been doing this now, uh, and this is my second go-round as an independent producer, is the most important commodity is time. And my time and how I choose to use it and which writers I work with and what projects I do um, I make sure now every single project I do, I understand the end result of it. Where is it going to live in the distribution space? Um, because if you don't understand distribution, then you're kind of, you don't know what you're, what you're making really. Um, because if it's a studio film versus it's an independent film versus it's a platform release versus it's a VOD release versus you're going to go straight to you know, Netflix or Amazon and try and sell to one of them, it's kind of understanding the distribution marketplace before you even think almost about, or simultaneous to thinking about the creative process of it. Um, and oftentimes I also think about, you know, what are the versions of this movie? If this movie comes out really well, can I make it for $30 million? Mm -hmm. But if I can't make it for $30 million, can I make it for three? You know, what is that version of the movie? So that there's a chance of, okay, here's the version I know I want to make, but if I can't, can I make this version so that we haven't wasted our time and energy on this? Sure, that's great. I, I sometimes share the story in our producing class uh, my mentor is a producer who is now in his early 70s and has mm -hmm. been doing this for a long time. And he would, we'd be talking about something and say, oh, wait just a second. And he'd open his filing cabinet, pull out a script <laughs> from like 40 years ago. He'd right. say, there's a really good idea in here, right? Yeah. Can you talk about sort of the breadth of your ideas that you're, you're developing? I, it is funny. As you go back through, you, know, you keep your constant development slate of, you know, right now my development slate is probably 12 existing scripts, two or three things in TV, and then there's the list of like ideas that I'm thinking that I'm pitching to writers when I sit down with them. There's a handful of, um, of IP that I'm chasing, a short story, a novel, things that I'm pursuing and that I've been given more or less a green light to say, go find a package and then come back and then we'll talk about putting together an option for it. Um, so at any given time, you're kind of, you're always looking at your slate every day when you're like, all right, what phone calls do I need to make? What action do I need to take on each of these projects? And so a lot of it is just, again, your time management, what I need to do. But it is funny, I was looking through, I think, you know, back at my computer the other day, and I found my project slate from 12, 15 years ago. 
and there's two or three things on this, I'm like, that's really a good idea. I should go back to that. <laughs> I don't know why I walked away from that. Uh, but sometimes it's, you, you have an idea you, you couldn't crack. I've got an idea right mm -hmm. now that writers are working on that I had the idea probably 10 years ago, and I pitched around a few people but never quite got that level of enthusiasm of like, yeah, we got to write that. And then I was you know, reading something else, and, and there was another facet to that idea that popped up that now made it interesting and relevant. And, and, uh, and when I pitched that version of the story, suddenly I had three writers who were like, I love that idea. Mm. Yeah, can I write that with you? So it's been, you know, you never know. Sometimes you have an idea, and it just has to percolate for a while. Um, I always think, at least the way I approach producing is I cast, I try and gather a huge, <laughs> vast body of knowledge and sift through it and say, okay, what in here interests me? Mm -hmm. um, I always tell people as a producer, I'm, I have a surface level of knowledge on a wide variety of topics. <laughs> um, I can go about five minutes deep on a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> but if he wants me to talk for an hour and a half, it's going to be difficult. So this is about it. <laughs> so um, tell us a little bit about the process. Um, it's interesting that you mentioned as a producer, so pitching writers, right? Mm -hmm. So you might uh, bring some talented writers into the room and say, hey, this is what I'm working with, you know. Mm -hmm. But then this also happens in, in reverse too, right? Mm -hmm. So you've got writers who say, hey, I've got this, this right. thing I've been working on. I, you know, do you think there's, you know? Right. And so you're getting pitched as well. Yes. Can you talk uh, about both that, but also how have you cultivated the relationships that allow you to have a dozen ideas going? And, and how have, or, or to pick up the phone mm -hmm. and, and call, you know, so you know, oh, I, I, there's that one writer who might be, this is a thriller, like that, right. that writer's really, might be perfect for this. Right. It's, a lot of it is, because you're cultivating relationships across the board. So you're looking at, and Hollywood is a, seems like a large town, but ultimately it's the population of this campus, really, in terms of the people that are actively working every day. So if you say, okay, there's really 50,000 people max, and really on the creative side, there's probably 5,000 people max that you, know, you kind of need to know. And at one point, I think, you know, my contacts database, I was trying to get all of them in it. <laughs> um, but it's, so, you know, you've got your agencies, you've got your managers, you've got your studio heads, you've got your independent financiers, you've kind of got this wide, you know, cross-section of everybody that's doing different things. Um, and then you've got your writers, your directors, uh, you know, and actors as well. And then you've got the whole subset of, of you know, press and, and people who are kind of ancillary to what I do, uh, but equally valuable to the, to the process. It's, you know, I've been doing this for 20-some years now. So it's a, over those years, you know, there's writers I met when I was right out of college at Imagine that I still talk to. Um, and you can, you know, you're always kind of like looking for that, what's that thing? Will this be the year I work with so-and-so? Yep. Um, and so it just depends. And if a writer, you know, the, the writers have taken a bad beat over the last couple of years because... Hollywood, like everything else, kind of in 2008 when, when the, um, the economy cratered, it cratered Hollywood too. And so what has happened is you used to have kind of three tiers of Hollywood writers and you've got those you know, million-dollar A-listers who literally will get paid you know, $200,000 a day to come in and punch up a script. So you want to hire them for five days, that's a million bucks. But then you've got you know, Aaron Sorkin's name on your script and that makes it a lot easier to get cast and get other people excited about it. So those guys are fine. And then there's the newbie writers that are getting paid... 2,500, 30,000 bucks, whatever that number is, but you're getting paid something. And you might be a really talented young writer and hey, this is your break and it's a break for the producer who got you because I'm getting this great young writer for almost no money, et cetera. But then there's the writers who were making 250 against five on studio movies and nobody pays attention to those quotes anymore. So I know a lot of those writers who are now, you're like, can I get you 65? And they're like, yes, <laughs> you know? Because it's just become that thing of the competition is so fierce. And so those two, you know, ends of the marketplace are fine, but the people in the middle 
And so there's a lot of you know, people trying to figure out how to reinvent themselves. Um, TV has been a huge thing for so many people over the last 10 years. And you know, even now I see writers that, that you know, I spoke to 15, 20 years ago who are now moving into TV. Yeah. So I think we're all kind of belatedly you know, chasing that a little bit mm -hmm. and realizing how smart our friends were 10 years ago who moved into <laughs> TV. Um, but it's, yeah, it's, it's, I think you kind of go through, if you build up a good reputation, yeah, my reputation has been one that I'm, I'm good to work. I enjoy the creative process with writers, and I support writers, um, and I give them notes. A lot of writers <laughs> will say, yeah, when I pitch an idea to a writer, it's a three-page to ten-page outline. Um, so I've actually put some thought into it, and I've had writers tell me that, you know, they get called in, and, like, the big producer's like, we've got this idea. We want to do an underwater treasure hunt movie. And the writer's like, wow, that's cool. Let's hear your idea. And they're like, that was it. We want to do an underwater <laughs> treasure hunt movie. What's your take on it? He's like, oh, okay. So versus that idea of like, I'm kind of laying this all out for you, but tell me the better version of this. Bring me back the version that would excite you mm. and see if that excites me, mm. you know, you building on what I gave you. Mm. Um, and so I've been very lucky that I've now made, you know, of the dozen plus movies I've made, I think five of them have been my idea. Mm -hmm. uh, or the writer and I came up with the idea in the room together and then built it from there. Um, but yeah, the movies come to you in all sorts of ways. You don't know. I mean, uh, my old boss, Dan Jinks, who is now Oscar winner Dan Jinks, he got uh, American Beauty as a spec script and from a friend of his who was an agent. And literally, I think that script <laughs> was 90%. The spec script was 90% of what that final movie was. Wow. So he was smart enough to know what to do with it once he had it. But you know, that's the lottery ticket landing in your lap as a producer to get that level of script. Mm -hmm. um, the good thing is there's a lot of, you know, between the blacklist and, and there's so many other... Um, ways out there for young writers to find uh, representation and, and kind of get their work out there, there is a discovery process of, of, of talent that now kind of goes beyond just an agent or manager calling you up and saying, you got to read this. But that's still, I mean, I, I, Barry Jenkins' manager called me two, three years ago and said, I got this great script, you got to read it. And it wasn't even available. It was just yep. more, you got to know this guy as a writer-director. Yep. And it was a fantastic script. And at the same time, <coughs> in reading it, I felt like, okay, I don't know as a producer what I would bring to this. Because I think that's the other thing is being... Yeah, we all have to figure out what do we bring to a project. And you, know, you have to have a point of view that adds some value to that project or an ability to just simply get it made. But um, I think that's a lot of times you'll read a script, you're like, that's a great script. I don't necessarily know that I can do anything with it, but somebody should. Yep. So that's kind of yeah, great nature of that process. Can you tell us, um, you know, as uh, in your introduction, in your bio, mm -hmm. we can see that you have worked on a, a pretty diverse mm -hmm. slate of, of pictures. Um, what what represents a, a real bullseye for you or a, a real success? Like what what do you sort of uh, I guess what are you looking for? But also what do you have that sort of uh, I guess appreciation for in yourself where you right. kind of say, hey, we nailed this one. It's so tricky. I mean, I'm I'm drawn most to things I've never seen before, which of course then are the hardest things to get made because <laughs> nobody's ever seen them before, and they're like, I don't know what this is, and so a lot of what I've I'd probably say half my slate is the, you know, Don Quixote, like, you know, <laughs> keep pushing something. You're like, yeah. I know there's something here, and it's just going to, I'm going to have to prove it by getting the right combination of talent involved. Um, but at the same time, I love a good, I love a good down the middle. I mean, I think anytime you can do something new within a genre, it's great, but sometimes just delivering on the genre can be good. I mean, there's some movies that you're not, you know, Big Mama's House, you're not trying to create high art. <laughs> you're like, hey, that's a funny idea. What's the, what's the version of that that, like, hits those beats? Mm -hmm. Um, and that was a fun movie to make, uh, notwithstanding some production issues. Um, but uh, it, so every, every project, I think you look at a little bit different. Again, what is it trying to hit? What are, you know, what are you trying to accomplish? And the ones that are difficult, 
are the ones where you really got to find somebody who's going to take that leap of faith with you. Yeah. Um, and sometimes, again, as a, as a producer, again, like I said, there's 10, maybe 12 producers in town that really matter. Um, oftentimes, and as I'm rebuilding myself here, a lot of what I'm doing is going out and partnering with other producers who've got bigger, better credits than I do when it's a specific genre. Because I know if I bring in another hard candy or bring in something kind of under $10 million that's edgy and smart and you know, uh, pushes the boundaries, people will trust me with that. But if I'm bringing out a $40 million action thriller, mm-hmm. people are going to say, well, you haven't done this. So a lot of Hollywood is that insecurity of, well, I don't want to take a chance on you because taking a chance on you really reflects on me <laughs> and the nature of, you know, if you back a, a movie and a project that flops, it affects your career as an executive, yeah, whether you're a studio exec or producer's exec or whatever else. So there is a lot of fear-based decision-making that goes into town, into that. But at the same time, I think every now and then there is, you look at you know, something like La La Land where the studio embraced it and not only embraced it, but more or less doubled the budget. Mm-hmm. and took a real chance at saying, okay, how do we make this? You know, we support the director's vision, and how do we make this? Mm-hmm. But even then, they brought on Mark Platt to produce it, and Mark, is, you know, Mark ran TriStar for years, and then was right over on Universal, and like, is as old-school a studio producer as you can get. So that was their safety blanket. Mm-hmm. It's like, all right, we're handing Damien Chazelle 30 million bucks, <laughs> and we think he's brilliant, but let's put Mark on this just to be sure it doesn't go really awry suddenly. Yep. So that's just the nature of it. So if you're trying to do something different. I think anytime you're trying to do whatever you're trying to do, again, it comes down to understanding what is it I'm trying to accomplish with this project? <coughs> Where does it fit? And then who are my potential partners based on that? If it's a really broad studio comedy, well, who are those five, six guys who do really broad studio comedy? You know, I got to get to Paul Feig. I got to get it to, you know, to 21 Laps. So it's like, it's knowing who your potential partners are for every project you do. Yeah. Great. We're, we're about to, uh, to go back to your, your roots <laughs> a little bit. Uh, before we do, I want to ask one more question. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a lot of producers in the room. I know we have uh, producers from a class that I'm taking and then other, uh, other producers, other young producers. Um, there's something that I'm really picking up from a lot of your answers. It sounds like the, the way that you're describing the producing process is a lot of, um, it's iterative, iterative, it's also walking projects forward, mm-hmm. making calls, mm-hmm. sort of, it, it's, it's, a, it's a, a real process. Mm-hmm. And you're also talking about the breadth of projects that you're doing that with. Mm-hmm. Um, can you speak to that a little bit in terms of, um, this is gonna be a very long question. All right. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think that, that we find in, in film school, in Austin, in the independent film scene, generally, we have a lot of writer-director projects that are sort of uh, creative-driven. Mm-hmm. Um, as a producer, uh, the answers that you're giving sounds like you're really listening to feedback. So you're, you'll pitch something to writers, you hear a response, mm-hmm. you uh, make a phone call, you hear an answer, and, and you, you change course or alter course, mm-hmm. or you know where it fits in the market. Can you talk about that producing process and how, how that's a little bit different than operating as just sort of a, a blind creative who has a brilliant right. idea? Which, by the way, I'm all for, because mm-hmm. that's, uh, the point to me, especially of film school, is, is, to, is to learn to fail brilliantly in film school because once you get out in the real world, you won't get to fail as much, and it'll, it'll get counted against you. And so film school offers not only this wide breadth of information for you to take in, it offers you the opportunity to work with materials, but I think your professors give you a chance to push the boundaries and say, okay, I've never tried this before, I don't think anybody's ever tried this before, I'm gonna do it. And if it works, fantastic, but if it doesn't work, hey, that's great, you tried it, and you learn something hopefully from it. So I'm, I'm a big believer in, you know, the, the writer, director, auteur is fantastic, and, we should be lucky to, to get to work with some of them. 
Um, but as a producer, it's you're much more. What I do is much more collaborative, um, because you know I'm never, and I hope if I'm the smartest person in the room, we always have problems, mm. because I want writers who are smarter than I am. If I if I if they're giving me back the version that I pitched them, it's like we're in trouble. <laughs> uh, where it's like I want you to elevate that, because if I could elevate it, I wouldn't be coming to you. Um, so it's always for me is that process of how many people are I work, and sometimes you go down a path and you go, it didn't work. And you have to kind of be honest with your writers and yourself and say, okay, we screwed up. Let's take a step back. What do we like here? What do we, let's retrench and say, okay, now how do we move forward? Um, but a lot of it is, is, a, it is a, it's a process always questioning. It's nice to have people you can run and bounce ideas. On. And even I will say, you know, I actually this year wrote the first screenplay I've written since I was in college um, because I've been busy writing treatments and smaller things. But I pitched an idea to a buddy of mine. And he's like, I love this. I'm really busy. I'll do it if you write it with me. We'll write it on spec together. Yep. And it was great as a writer, as a, as a <laughs> newbie writer for the first time in 20 years, to have a writing partner who literally writes five, six pages every day and treats it as a job mm -hmm. because that's what it is. And, uh, but it was interesting, too, because I'm always used to, again, you make a treatment. You make a roadmap. You create this plan of, like, here's where we think the story is going to go. And then you kind of expect the writer is going to go follow that roadmap. And my buddy's like, look, every 15 pages, we re-examine the roadmap again. And you always look and they're like, are we still going down the right path? Are we still going down the right path? And it was frustrating on one level because I'm like, dude, we spent all this time figuring out this roadmap. And now you're like, yeah. <laughs> uh, and yet he was right because we got to page 70 or so and the roadmap was get, it was getting, you realize in writing the script, it was getting repetitive. Mm -hmm. But when you're writing the treatment, it didn't feel that way. So it was just experientially, you had to commit to something and go, hey, this doesn't work anymore. Uh, and I found myself just doing that. I'm, I'm writing another treatment right now. Uh, and I got to the third act. I'm like, this is no longer working. And I got to throw all this out and come up with a different third act. And so, again, it's the process of writing and producing is different. But yet the, the common element for me and the way I approach it is that collaborative nature of throwing ideas out there, getting feedback, thinking about it again. You know. um, and again, a lot of what you do is... You know, you pitch ideas to people. I'm calling agents saying, hey, I've got this project. You know, here's what it is. Or I'm calling, you know, and you always know, like, I'm doing these meetings now with all the big agencies because I've now got a slate of material. And you start going through those scripts and you get the, you know, those first couple are like, yeah, that, wow, that sounds great. Oh, man, we really want to read that. And you get that pitch and they're like, huh. You're like, damn it, huh, all right, all right. And then you're like, did I not pitch it well? Is the idea not working? So what is it, you know, you got to figure out then how to retrench. So by the next agency meeting, I'm like pitching it slightly differently to see do I still get, huh. Or what I get. Uh, sure. So there's always that sense of, and, and quite honestly, you, know, you pitch, if you set out to pitch eight or ten projects, you know, people's eyes start to glaze over at a certain point. And so as a producer, as any creative, you know, as any salesperson, really, because that's kind of what we're all doing, um, you've got to figure out what are people responding to and then mm -hmm. steer your efforts in that direction. Because there's four or five projects that every agency is, ah, yeah, we like this, we like this, and the other ones are going to, huh. <laughs> then your attention tends to gravitate towards those, and then I have to go back to the writers on the other ones and go, yeah, it's just not landing somehow, so let's sit down and talk about it. Mm -hmm. And I just had a marathon session with a writer on an idea we've been working on, and, and he actually is now at the point, he's like, I think it might be a better TV pilot. And I was like, I think you might be right, actually, because <laughs> the world is so big and vast, and we're trying to cram it into two hours, yeah. and yet it might actually be a better TV pilot. So it's, it's that we may have to have gotten enough passes on it as a feature to send us in this other direction that might be you know, profitable. We don't know. We'll find out. Yeah. So, but it's, yeah, I think it's, you know, different producers approach it differently. A lot of, a lot of producers, there are producers who don't like to read scripts. I've worked for some of them. Um, you know, it takes them, you know, I had a boss who's, 
his favorite uh, scripts were always, it's a breezy read. Because <laughs> he could get through it quickly. I'm like, well, but what about all the... No, no, well, I got through it in like two hours. Like, okay. So he hates to read. It takes him two hours to read a script. But if it's at least you written in a way where he can easily kind of take it in, that's made him happy. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and it's like, so it's always just there's, yeah, there's 50 different kinds of producers, even within the creative community, much less the, you know, the people who are just bringing money to the table or the line producers or hybrids of those things. Um, there's so many different ways to approach. I mean, I'm, I am a producer, honestly, because... In my film two class, um, our professor at the time was Ira. Ira Evans, thank you, sir. Uh, and Ira, in, in essence, said, "Look, you're a producer if you control material. You know, if you can if you can walk in the door and say, I control this material. And how do you control material? Well, you buy the rights to it, you option it, you write it yourself, you make a deal with it. So it's like, by the time I graduated Texas and made a decision to leave for L.A., I had I think ten projects under my belt as a producer and you know two of them were horrible scripts that i had co-written <laughs> and two or three were better scripts that some of my you know fellow rtf people uh, uh you know students had written and then i'd optioned like uh a joe lansdale book before anybody knew who joe lansdale was i'd optioned like uh, three or four short stories because i found out very quickly if you call somebody up and say hey i'm a fan of this short story from 1968 and i want to see if i can make a movie of it, they're usually like okay you know <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah and i was like oh, okay i can pay you 100 bucks for a year option all right then so it got my foot in the door a bunch of places. I didn't ultimately set any of those up, but those meetings of calling and saying, hey, I'm fresh out of film school and I've got 10 projects that I want to come talk to you about, got me in the room that actually got me the job eventually to start off as a grunt. So This, this is wonderful. You are, you are segueing. I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm interrupting your beautiful segue. Uh, I could feel that's where you're yeah. going. Awesome. Well, so one thing that I should mention too that I don't think we mentioned at the front, we are going to have time for Q&A. So uh, we're about to go back to, to David's beginnings. And uh, so make some mental notes for questions you may, might have at the end. We'll save some time at the end. Um, so uh, this is great. I'm like, we have a mental image of you starting out. Yes. Um, can, you, can you tell us a little bit more? Like, what, were, um, what was going through your mind when you were sitting in, not these seats because this building wasn't here, but <laughs> Thank you. what was going through your, yes. your mind when you were sitting in these seats? Um, it was interesting. I came at it from, I, I grew up in literally in the farm belt of Kansas. Uh, my father's a dentist with not a creative bone in his body. Um, my mother was like a my, you know, college actress, kind of dabbled in it kind of thing, but not creative. And I think around about 10th grade when I got to high school, my friends were like, hey, audition for the school, school play. And I got the lead in the school play, the first thing I auditioned for. I'm like, well, that's kind of fun. Um, and so I got the theater bug. And then, but I, I, when I went to college, I was doing double degrees in theater and television, which was actually broadcast journalism, uh, originally at Kansas State. And I quickly realized that I was not the best actor in the room, uh, but that I enjoyed also the directing part and the working with the actors, you know, uh, as, uh, in terms of performance. But I kept trying to take the broadcast journalism cameras and go shoot the plays. <laughs> and finally, the broadcast journalism <laughs> professors were like, you don't want this degree. You want a film degree, so let us help you. <laughs> and so they helped me... Uh, um, yeah, send out my packet, and I got accepted, actually, at NYU, UT, and UCLA. And at the time, I remember I was, you know, 19, 20 years old, and I thought, I'm just not ready to go to either coast, but Texas looks really cool. Uh, and I came down for the orientation, was like, yeah, I want to be here. And so I only did two years here, but I did it in two years, I crammed in summer schools, because I crammed in, I literally did kind of four years of what you guys are doing, starting with Richard Berg's, you know, introduction to film, all the way through film two and making projects. So I skipped film three, uh, was what I did not do. But... <laughs> 
you know, I took the summer classes and took and took uh, Michael Cohen had a photography class at the time and like learning still photos and how to you know. So it was like a really crash course going from theater to suddenly thinking in film. And what I realized is I had been a huge comic book geek in my earlier days, and I suddenly realized that comic books were story panels for films, <laughs> and that making that understanding of like, okay, here's one art form, low as it may be, uh, that exactly translates to this art form, which also can be low or high. Um, <laughs> and so that was a, that really helped me kind of understand, okay, I'm basically taking something I've always loved, and I was always a bookworm and, and the comic books, but, um, and plugging it into film, which was the same thing, but a slightly different language of it. Um, and then just, uh, yeah, we were lucky, you know, the professors here were fantastic. I think the, the feedback was always, you know, can you push the boundaries? I mean, I know, you know, film one, we were working at the time, what, the wind-up Bolexes and, you know, uh, with no, with fixed focal length and everything else and no, no sync sound. And we made a 12-minute black and white uh, action thriller called Pit Baby. <laughs> uh, that I think they used to show as an example of what not to do, uh, where we had 15 lines of sync dialogue that we had to sync ourselves. We had a, a car chase and we had an explosion. Um, so it was a fairly ambitious, but it was like the professors were like, yeah, if you think you can pull that off, go for it. You know, so it really was one of those, all right, see what happens. And then in our film two project, we got more ambitious and, and sank. You know, it didn't work at all. We were like, ha, ah, we reached too far. But it was that, again, that idea of like, all right, why didn't that one work? Why did this one do it? But it was, again, in film two, where um, Ira was talking about block currencies and negative pickup deals, and it was that light bulb moment of like, wait, so this all makes sense to me. Now I, now I just understand it as a, as a business thing. It's like there's a creative part, and that's great, but Ira had just kind of broken the code for us of here's how you take this creative thing that you like and then go sell it and go figure out how to make it and get distribution. And so my, my buddy, uh, uh, Jason Bell, who now runs his own ad agency up in Seattle, Jason and I uh, went up. We found this guy up in Dallas who had done a, like a $400,000 low-budget film in Texas that was getting some buzz on it. It was, be, it was right before Richard Linklater and, and Slackers. Um, I forget what the film was, but we sat down with him, and we, again, we pitched him like four or five ideas we loved. And the first one that he responded to was Roadkill. Uh, there was a low-budget movie about uh, a bunch of uh, college kids who run up against a homicidal biker on the, on the, uh, on the interstate here. Um, so again, high art. And, uh, but then he loved this thriller that we had. That we, had a, we had a jagged edge kind of thriller. And he was like, basically we're gonna make this one for like 500,000 bucks, you guys are gonna direct, and then we're gonna go make that one for one and a half million, it'll be this one first and then this one. And so it was literally the strange thing was suddenly in, while still in film school, we had a contract to go write and direct movies with a known producer. Uh, and I do remember one of my, the film one TA at the time, Simon something who's Canadian, very nice guy, was like, um, can you take a look at this script of mine? I was like, all right, that's weird. The, 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 the relationship just changed pitched. here. I'm getting pitched now by my professor. Um, but, and then it turned out the lesson in producing was, yeah, we wrote the script. It was truly mediocre at best. Um, but it was a makeable piece of R-rated dreck that could fit into, you know. And, uh, and our producer was like, all right, we're going to go find the money. We're going to go find the money. And I've got the money. And, and I'm going to go out and get these deals. I'm going to bring back a negative pickup deal, et cetera. And then he brought back a deal with a company that had essentially just created itself. And so it was an ancillary of like Curb Records, which was a huge uh, country western label at the time. And then got, I forget who they merged with. But they had started up Curb Films. But there was no assets behind Curb Films. And even as film students, we were like, but wait, if we deliver the film and they decide not to take it and they declare bankruptcy, then our investors <laughs> screwed because now they don't have to pay the negative pickup. And he's like, well, they'd never do that. Like, <laughs> really? And then so when we finally parted ways with him, he's like, well, I've got some development cost. And it turns out he had uh, an expensive cocaine habit 
and an expensive <laughs> stripper habit. And so he wanted $20,000 in, in development cost uh, to buy him out of it. We're getting the real uh, story. So, and I remember thinking at the time, okay, if you're going to get screwed, you should go out to Hollywood and get screwed by people who are actively doing this on a daily basis <laughs> versus getting screwed by somebody here who may, not, may or may not be making movies. Um, and so that was after, after another like six months of regrouping and trying to find more material and everything else is what caused me to make the move to, to L.A. And again, it was, it was difficult because Austin is a fantastic town. And, and at the time, it was, it was what was called the third wave and the third coast. And there was the idea that Austin is going to become, there's going to be L.A. and New York and there's going to be Austin. And there was all this talk of sound stages getting built in Austin and everything else. But there was that still for me, and, and so a lot of talk was, why would you leave Austin? Just stay here and make movies. But for me, even at the time, I felt like, you know, all roads lead to Mecca. If you're going to make movies at some point, whether it's for, you know, casting or financing or especially distribution, you're going to have to be in, in Hollywood. So it was a sense of, like, I might as well go. I mean, because I actually, and again, I don't know how it is with you guys now, but at the time in the late 80s, early 90s, our, the film students were really evenly split between people who thought Jim Jarmusch was a god and people who wanted to make Die Hard 3. <laughs> and so, and I kind of straddled the fence. I like both. But there was that sense to me of like, well, why can't you like Jim Jarmusch and also like Star Wars? Um, and so I think there was people who were like, I would never go to Hollywood. That's selling out. And I was like, but you get to do both. What? John Sayles is in Hollywood, for God's sake. Mate one, you know, which you guys should all watch if you haven't seen it. Brilliant movie. Um, so it's, it, for me, it was not, there was not a, 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 a the downside of Hollywood going there was knowing all the downsides to it, but there wasn't the downside of like, oh, I'm selling out by going to Hollywood because I was always wanted to sell out, uh, with the idea being of like, you know, by selling out, maybe I can make the things I want to make too. So, yeah. so it just I, again, it, and it goes to again, there were an infinite almost number of paths for everybody in this room to take, and those paths may lead you to Hollywood, New York. They may lead you here. They may make you an independent filmmaker. You might become a publicist. It's like you just never know. So it's, it's, a, it's a, you know, casting a wide net and seeing kind of where it leads you. But every now and then it also requires that, you know, you look at your career and say, okay, maybe I do need to make a shift. And where would that shift take me? And, yeah. So that's a longer conversation, but there you go. I think one of the, the most valuable things for, for producers in this room mm -hmm. is really getting a picture of um, what were some of the steps that you took, some of the breaks mm -hmm. that, that you got what you attribute them to. Can you walk us through a few of your early steps? So it sounds like you, you went out and you had a few things in your pocket. You said, all right, mm -hmm. I've got some options on some things that ultimately didn't get set right. up anywhere. But what were some of the, um, the things you tried mm -hmm. and some of the early successes and failures okay. you had? So the, the <laughs> it's funny, we're just at, uh, you guys know a company called Voltage. Nick Chartier is a financier, distributor, et cetera. Uh, um, he did, um, Oh, heck, the one that won the Academy Award a few years ago, opposite Avatar, um, the war movie with Catherine Bigelow. Thank you. Uh, Hurt Locker. Um, so he's got, he's got a company that now lives where the old New Line, the original New Line's offices were. And so we were in there for a meeting on another project, and I just, and they moved us in the conference room, and I'm like, this was my first job interview in Hollywood. Like, literally, I was sitting in this room 30 years ago, and it was, I went in, I was pitching, I think, Mike DeLuca, uh, who's now gone on to become a huge producer, but he was like the junior development guy at New Line at the time, and I was pitching my 10 projects. And in essence, Mike was like, look, I don't love any of those, but I like your energy. So I'm going to get you in with, with human resources. We're going to find a job for you here at New Line. At the time, New Line was probably, I don't know, 50, 60 people. It was a bi-coastal company, but you know, it, was, it, had, it probably had, they probably had, you know, uh, what, the Freddy movies or something. They had something that was like generating income, but they weren't the New Line they became. And so I'm like, okay, that's great. And I, was, and I go in and... The HR person like, look, we love you. These guys said they love you. We got to find a job for you. The only job is you can 
We need somebody to track all of our theatrical trailers as they go to all the theaters around the nation. And say, so, all right, at the time, it was probably, you know, if you went wide at the time, it was probably 1,500 screens instead of the 5,000 it is now. But it's like, all right, so you're, in essence, a mid-level manager tracking these and probably had a starting salary of like 35,000 bucks. And I went home, and unfortunately, there was nobody in my life who I had as a mentor at the mm -hmm. time to say, say yes, just say yes. Because I was like, it's not the job I want. It's not creative. Mm -hmm. It's not at all what I want to do. I can't say, I mean, it's, all you're doing is fun. And so I remember I went back and I pitched them, yes, I can do that, but what if I also curate your trailers and turn them into this? And they're like, yeah, that's not what we're looking for. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, I was like, okay. Um, and in hindsight, I should have said yes. I should have said yes in the room. I should have said yes at the moment because the hardest thing to do is to get your first job in Hollywood. Um, it's hard to get your first job as an intern. Then it's hard to get your first job as an assistant. And it's super hard to get your first job as an executive. But once you've gotten those jobs, it gets a lot easier to leapfrog around within the system because, in essence, you're validated. You know, somebody else has said, this person's worth taking a chance on. And yeah, so other people are like, oh, okay, we should look at them. And in hindsight, I should have taken a job I did not want mm -hmm. to get at a company where I, did, where I wanted to be. Mm -hmm. um, and I regret that. And sitting in that room, I'm like, oh, yeah, that was a major mistake. <laughs> um, now, granted, it's worked out for me okay. But at the time, I'm looking, I look at because then after that, the next job I got was eventually I ended up at Imagine, which was a great company. But I ended up as the grunt, entry level, you know, PA, making fifteen or sixteen thousand dollars a year, um, and you know, basically running errands, getting coffee, doing everything, you know, copying scripts, everything else. And you're like, it was a great company, and then I learned a lot, and I took relationships from there, so I built on that. But you're like in hindsight, and so I've always I've had you know friends call me. Again, like, yeah, I got offered this job at this company. I don't really want to work at that company. I don't like their movies. It's like, it doesn't matter. Take the job. Because, again, it's especially, like, a lot of people are like, well, they haven't made a movie in six months or two years or however long. It's like, that job's bulletproof. Because if you take that job and you can't get any movies made, you can blame it on the company. But if you take that job and get a movie made, you're the hero. Right. You're the guy that turned that company around. Right. So it's like, again, you have to take a step out of yourself sometimes. And I think that's why, you know, I wish I'd had a mentor in L.A., yeah, who could have said, don't be stupid, take the job. Sure. Um, and so I think that's a key thing. If you can find somebody you know, whose opinion you trust and, and you can run things past them, um, no matter kind of what those circumstances are, I think that's a great thing to have. Um, so my first job, so after that debacle, and I ended up working uh, uh, two jobs. I was working at a, at a property management firm. During the daytime, I was working at The Gap at Century City Mall at night, uh, which is interesting because every now and then, like Dennis Franz or somebody from off Hill Street Blues would come in and shop. You know, to buy, you know, corduroys. Um, <laughs> and even now, my stuff is so well folded in my closet. <laughs> you really learn folding at the Gap. Um, but I was like, all right, how do I now get a job in this industry? And so I sat down and I made a list of what are my favorite movies uh, that, are that are current, because I love a lot of period movies too, but what are my favorite current movies? And then I broke that down, I created a, gr a grid of like, who are the producers that have made those movies? And then I was like, all right, well, Joel Silver's made three of these movies that I love, and Imagine's made five of these movies that I love, and, you know, and so I literally kind of created this grid of like, well, I should work for one of these people then. And so I just started sending out blind letters of, in essence, you know, I love your movies, mm -hmm. I'm an independent, you know, I've got my film degree, I'm looking for this job. Um, and I got a call back from Imagine, like the day I'd sent, or, you know, back in the day when you actually mailed stuff in. Um, and I got a call from Imagine, and apparently they had, without my knowing it, they had placed an ad in the Hollywood trade papers mm. looking for that entry-level position, and they'd placed it the day my letter arrived, so then my letter was at the top of the stack. Mm -hmm. So here's the key. It's <laughs> A, luck. Dumb luck is always wonderful. Uh, but two, 
your resume sucks coming out of college. It just does, because no matter how much you make it look good, they're like, all right, well, I directed this, and I've done these kind of things. It's like, it's very little real-world experience. And if it is real-world experience, it's usually, well, I was a set PA on this movie that came through often, and, and that's great, but nobody really cares. And so that's what you're always fighting against, because you have the same resume literally as almost any other film student in America. What I realize is never lie on your resume, because people will check resumes, and that's dishonest to lie on your resume. You should lie on your cover letter. <laughs> Nobody checks cover letters. Um, and so in my cover letter, I made up a few things. Um, but one of the, I was, I, when, I was, when I was out here in film school, there was a woman in film school who had an older boyfriend who was getting his, his uh, marine biology degree. And he wanted to go work at SeaWorld for the summer because he was convinced he was going to get to work with the dolphins and Shamu. And instead, he spent the entire summer scrubbing penguins. <laughs> because penguins are dirty little beasts, and yet the populace expects them to be this pure black and white, and so they have to get scrubbed like twice a day. Penguins do not like to be scrubbed. So you have to wear like these thick rubber gloves and this brush, and so all day long for the whole summer, he scrubbed penguins. And I'm just like, well, I'm gonna take that one. So I, my, my cover letter was like, look, I've never done anything from build houses to shoot films. I've scrubbed penguins, I've done this, I've done this. <laughs> And they're like, look, if you can scrub penguins, you can certainly work for Brian Grazer. <laughs> so I'm, yeah. So again, never lie on the, on, the, on the resume. But so, and then it was suddenly realizing, okay, now I'm at this company. And at the time, Imagine was literally, I think, at its largest it's ever been. Imagine started off in, in the, what, early 80s, I think. You know, Ron and Brian had met each other in Splash and, yep. and uh, kind of started building from there. And by the time I came along, they were making Backdraft and Far and Away. Uh, but the company had grown to literally like 125 employees on two floors, and they had a full, it was, in essence, it was a minor studio. It was, it was probably bigger than the New Line was at the time. And they had gone public. They'd, you know, they'd sold shares and gone public. And so the company was gigantic, which meant there was all these different divisions. It was like working for a studio. And so I was able to kind of go around and ask questions and sit on desks and listen and everything else. And I quickly realized that the development department was really the skill set that I already had. Mm -hmm. I just didn't know what it was. Um, because now, and I think you guys, the width and breadth of your knowledge now is much more inclusive of what's going on in Hollywood. At the time, I think we were a little more in our, in our independent bubble, which was making movies, making movies, and learning the skills to make movies versus, okay, now how do you go work in Hollywood? So development and coverage and things like that weren't things that we really talked about when I was here, and I know that's now been added to the curriculum, which is great. Um, but, and, and one of the things they had me do is I copied, the Weekend Read, at the time, I just think how many trees I killed, because the Weekend Read was every executive in development, and so there was like 10 executives in development. Each of them had to read like 12 scripts over the weekend, so, or more, so I was making 120 copies of scripts you know, and you learn to be really good at, at changing toner, and, and again, you learn how to fix a copier when it's basically that's what you, you live in the copy room. But it gave me access to the library. And so I would realize that in the library, there was like every project Imagine had, but every script that any executive had ever been sent that they thought was good. And so I would, in essence, sneak in the library when nobody was looking for me, and I would sit there and read scripts in the library and just kind of get a sense of what did I like and everything else. And then the other thing I realized was being aggressive, as even though my job was to make sure the bagels were out and make sure the coffee's done and deliver the mail and answer the phones and all the jobs that nobody really wants to be doing. The, what I realized was if I went to, say, the USC Student Film Festival and I came back and told two of the execs, man, there's this amazing young filmmaker. You've got to check him out. And then they're like, oh, that's great. You're right. We're going to bring him in. It's like, well, can I sit in the room with you when you meet him? They're like, oh, yeah, you found him. You know, come sit in the room with us. And so it was that realization of even though you don't have the job you want, 
you should be doing that job anyway. And I think that's what I still see now, because we have obviously interns from all sorts of colleges, including Texas, come through. And I think the biggest lesson I would give you guys is a lot of interns I see sitting around, or even assistants sitting around, being waiting to be given a task. And my experience was, if you start doing the job you want, eventually they will give you that job. Um, and whereas it didn't happen for me, I'd imagine, because I was stuck behind like <laughs> five <laughs> assistants ahead of me, it got me to make the jump from Imagine to Writers and Artists Agency, where I ended up taking like a temp job that two days in, the head of the agency was like, we're going to fire that person and hire you instead. Um, because it was just, it was a new thing, so I threw myself into it with a lot of enthusiasm, but also, you know, I worked my butt off at Imagine, so it was easier, you know, suddenly I was on the president's desk, which was a much cushier job, so I was like, well, this is much easier than what I'd been doing, and it also helped that they repped like three or four of the writers who had projects at Imagine, so I was like, oh, I've already met that writer, I know them, you know, and I started, while on that desk, I started actually doing notes for writers, and, you know, part of it's just doing a, a grammar pass of, like, they're there, you're your, it's it's, you know, all the stuff that drive me nuts as a script, you know, as a read, like, did nobody proofread this? Um, but it's also just started giving notes of, like, did you think about doing this, or what if you did this? And so it just, uh, and then on the front line, to be, I became the, the reader where if, if an agent was sent material, they would usually throw it to me to say, tell me if I should sign this person. Mm. Um, and at one point, again, they dangled the idea to me of, do you want to be an agent? And I just, again, it was one of those things of, like, if I say yes, it's going to send me down this path that I don't know that I want to go down, and yet would it shortcut me in a, in a way? But I just I, I said no thank you, and I stayed on that desk for two years, and I spent, I gave my boss a year where I said I'm working for you, and then after that I'm going to start looking. But it took me a year to, to land my first executive job mm -hmm. from there. And uh, I, was, I was infamous for, of, of people that would come through were like, remember when I was hired and you said don't get used to you, you're going to be gone soon? And yet, I'm like, thank you, thank you very much. <laughs> But I was like, I'm not leaving till I get the job I really want. Because a lot of times you'd go do a job interview, they'd be like, you're great, but you have no development experience. Why don't you come be my assistant for a year, and then I'll promote you. I'm like, I'm not going to do that again. I've got a great boss. I'm not going to be somebody else's assistant. I'm going to stick it out there and hope that that turns into something. But even then, the process, I realized, as you take job interviews, it was the same thing of like, if you just go in and say, hey, I've been working on so-and-so's desk. I worked at Imagine. I worked on so-and-so's desk, et cetera. They're like, okay, that's great, but it was once I realized, what do they want this job? What do they, if you're interviewing for this junior exec, what is the job? And then pulling that back and saying, well, then I need to walk in the room already doing that job because that's what they're looking for is that assurity that whoever I'm hiring in this job can do it. And if you're just walking in as an assistant, maybe you can do it. And so I started walking in with this idea of, I would have lists for everything. I'd have lists of what are the hot 10 specs that are coming out next week? What are the hot 10 directors that you should, be, you should know? Who are the hot writers you should know? What is the, you know, who's my favorite top 10, you know, of all time comedy director list? So it's like you just, you build this thing where you make yourself bulletproof in an interview so that there's no question they can ask you that won't throw you. Because a lot of what, you know, interviewing techniques is to throw you and see how you react. Um, uh, I still remember, who was it? Red, uh, Red, Red, Cap, Red, Red Wagon, Doug Wick. Um, I had a job interview. I think it was like the next level exec. I was already an exec, and I was interviewing to be a VP for him. And I came in, and uh, back in the day when I was wearing my grad ring, but I'm sitting like, you know, 15 feet away from him, and he's like, he glanced over, he's like, oh, I see you're a University of Texas alum. I'm like, what the <laughs> hell? How can you? And he's like, I'm reading your resume. I'm like, all right, all right. <laughs> uh, but it's just that moment where you're like, your brain is kind of like, wait, what? All right. Um, but that's a good interview technique to see if you can throw somebody off, by the way, so be prepared for those. But I think it's... So again, my, my gradual success was because it took me a while to figure out, again, what are people looking for in an executive if they're going to hire you, um, and then figuring out how to be that before you ever went to do the job interview.
Yeah. Um, and I think that's like I said, the you know every year the companies I've worked for, we have interns that come through and and then those interns graduate and they reach out and say, hey, I'm looking for a job. And a lot of them are like, who is that person again? What did they do? I don't really remember. But the ones you remember are the people who are like, I read five scripts a week and I came and did a set of notes without being asked. And I, you know, and then I'm like, you know, can I sit in on that writer meeting or can I, you know, so it's like if a new draft of a project comes in, the intern who reads that draft at the same time or even before you and is like, hey, I did notes on this if you'd like to look at them. You know, so it's, that's the kind of intern you want is somebody who's aggressive enough that is going to be doing the job without being asked. And that's the person who, when they graduate, you're going to be like, oh, yeah, they were great. They kicked butt. Let's get them back in here. So that's, I think, the biggest piece of advice I can give you guys because I think it's, it's a lot of times you're waiting to be given permission to do stuff, and you can't wait for permission. You just kind of got to do it. And that <laughs> is in, movie, it's in your making your movies, writing your scripts, or pursuing the job. It's don't ask for permission. Just do it. That's really invaluable. Um, I think that's a, a really good snapshot of that of that portion of mm -hmm. your life, and I'm sure there will probably be some questions in our Q&A related to that. Um, I'd like to, while we still have uh, a little time, get to your some of your early credits. Mm -hmm. it's, it's really interesting that you're, in your bio, at least, your first big credit is Big Mama's House, which mm -hmm. is a big movie yeah. and did very well. Um, and then you followed it up by a very successful small movie. Can mm -hmm. you talk about those two projects and and how right. did how did you end up with um, with such an such a great credit on, on a big movie uh, first coming out of the gate? Um, so Big Mama's House. So in ninety, so I was I was at I I, I got I was at Writers and Artists Agency for two and a half years. I then went to a company called um, uh, uh, Bregman Bear, where it was and this is always interesting. Uh, Marty Bregman was an old school producer may still be alive. He was like, he discovered Alan Alda and Al Pacino and Barbara Streisand and he was their manager back in the day and then he became a producer as, as they became stars. And he was this really old school producer who had a deal at Universal and he'd managed to find some money out of, out of uh, Germany, uh, this company called Capella. And so they were backing him and so it was a great company because I had a really smart boss but in essence we were supposed to be a buyer and so we could get our hands on every script. So it's a lot of what you're doing as a junior, as a, basically as a retriever is what we used to call it back in the day, is you're calling up every agent in town and saying, what specs are you going out with this week? Can I see it? Um, and so not only do you get really good at like tracking the material and figuring out what agent's going out with stuff, but coming from a place where I'm like, I'm an independent buyer. I don't need a studio to buy scripts for us. Um, that got their attention. And so pretty much everybody's like, yeah, I'll send it to you. you know, we'll see if you ever buy anything. But yes, we'll send it to you. So I got a lot of material coming in that way. Um, and again, I, I, Dan Jinks was a fantastic boss, and I learned a lot from him. And then I jumped from there to Mark Gordon, and it was right after Mark had done Speed. And he was finishing Broken Arrow at the time, and then we were moving into other stuff. And while I was there, we started developing Saving Private Ryan. And that was really special, to be part of that process, to see how it happened, and then to see what happened when Spielberg came on. Um, so that was great. And Mark, I think I learned more about development from Mark than anybody else. Like He was really smart about you know, how do you structure screenplays, how do you structure character development. Uh, whereas Brian Grazer was more high concept, what's the big idea, how do I, you know, what excites me about that? And you marry those two together and that's the right combination. The thing that being funny is the, two, the one time those two worked together, Brian fired, fired Mark off the movie. <laughs> um, where Mark had lessons to learn too, apparently. But, um, but from there I jumped to David Friendly and David had been an executive imagine, is how I'd known him. And David was starting, he had gotten his deal at, at Fox and we were what was called an exclusive deal. So an exclusive deal means, in essence, you can't, take projects anywhere besides Fox. And the good thing was Fox had Fox, Fox Searchlight, Fox 2000. So there was at least three kind of bites at the apple you could do, and three very specific kind of movies each of those divisions did. But it meant, you know, if you had a great idea and all the Fox divisions passed, you couldn't 
do anything with it. You were done. Uh, but they were willing to, in an exclusive deal, they'll give you more money up front. And that was important for David and ultimately important for me since I was getting paid you know, out of his fee. Um, but Big Mama's House came in. You know, so we were setting up a bunch of things. And we, had like a, we, had a, we did a teen drama. Actually, the first movie I did with David was this thing called Here on Earth. That's uh, Lily Sobieski and Chris, um, oh heck, from, uh, thank you. Um, and then uh, and, and it, a, a well-meaning script that felt, I think uh, it was funny because I, having grown up in the heartland, my boss, the director, and the writer were all from New York. And I think they <laughs> had this version of anything that's not New York is 1950s Americana. And it was like this time bubble of like, you know they have the internet in Kansas, right? They, they, they you know, MTV, you know, that kind of stuff, it exists. Uh, not just New York. Um, and so the movie was well done. It just it felt like a time bubble. Like I think that was some of the reviews of this. Is this supposed to be present day? Um, but Big Mama's House came out because uh, the writer had written a script that was a kind of a knockoff of the Alan Alda movie Four Seasons, which is a great study of of you know dynamics of four couples who always hang out all four seasons and what happens when one couple gets divorced and everything else. And so he'd written in essence an African American version of that. I was like, oh, I love that movie. That's a great idea. So we sat down and did like two hours of development notes on the script. And at the end of it, he's like, you know, I got this other idea. But you know how Eddie Murphy and Nutty Professor has to play the old grandma? What if he was a cop and he had to play the old grandma to catch a criminal? I'm like, okay, wait. I'm like, forget that. Focus on this. And so we spent like the next 30 minutes going, okay, why? And why does he, why does he have to do that? And okay, and you know, what's the setup? And at the end of 30 minutes, we walked into my boss up and said, what about this? He's like, I love that. Um, and then the joke of it, and this is, I always tell people, as a producer, you have to truly believe in your heart of hearts that you're wrong, and you're right, and everybody else is wrong, because you're going to hear no repeatedly. And you're going to hear no across the spectrum of any job in this industry. But your job is to believe in something, even when other people don't believe in it. Um, and so he wrote the first draft of Big Mama's House, and we gave it to our studio exec, and he's like, that's pretty fun. And he ran it past you know, Tom Rothman's head, and Tom's like, yeah, no, I don't really love it. We're like, OK. And the other two editions were like, we'll never make that movie. And so. Then the writer's like, you know, hey, I ran into Martin Lawrence. And we pitched it to him originally. <laughs> we pitched it to them, and they're like, nah, we're not going to buy a pitch from this writer. We don't trust this writer to deliver, deliver a pitch. But then the writer's like, I ran into Martin Lawrence at, at the deli. Mm -hmm. And I pitched it to him. And Martin's like, I love that. Keep me in mind. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, I'm going to spec this out. So he literally, you know, over G December 15th to January 15th, wrote a spec. And it wasn't great, but it was like, that's a movie. All right, I can see what that movie is. And then again, we took the script in, and the studio's like, eh, it just needs too much work. We're like, okay. And so then Martin's people read it, and they're like, we love this from Martin. We want to attach Martin to develop, which means, in essence, you buy it, we'll give feedback, and if the script gets better, Martin will maybe make this movie. And the studio's like, we don't want to wait in line for Martin Lawrence's movie. He's got five other things out there. We're, no, we're not going to do it. And then Martin read the script and said, I want to make this my next movie. And the studio said, we love this. <laughs> and I was like, all right. But the lesson that I learned from that was, as a producer, your job is to create momentum. And you do that initially by... The idea, the writer, the people you work with, you're the first level of creating momentum. But you're going to stall out, ultimately, if it's just you. You've got to get the next pieces to create momentum. So you've got to get talent. And if you get that director, you get that actor, and they're excited about it, that means their reps are excited about it. And that means their reps at the entire agency get excited about it. So now you have you know, a major agency behind you. And now it's not just you trying to push this boulder up the hill. It's you and this agency. And now on behalf of the actor or the director or whatever. And so once your job becomes shared by other people, your job becomes easier. Um, and so I think that's always the, the big lesson is how do you get other people to help you do your job by making it their job as well. Um, and you can only do that really by trying to get attachments and getting other people to fall in love with what you're doing. But that's really what we're all trying to do. Um, 
but yeah, so that was, so Big Mama's House came together, you know, really just because we kept pushing, and we were like, literally, I think my boss was like, hey, this is never going to happen, just let it go. I'm like, no, we yeah. can't let it you go. Know. And like two days later, Martin's like, yeah, I'll make that. Um, and then, and then, and then we, were in, we were in prep, because we were trying to beat, we were trying to beat Nutty Professor, because we found out, we had a sequence in there that was all about the church sequence and the church choir and everything else. And there was that whole sequence about that. So we, and we were aware that Nutty Professor 2 was going to use a similar sequence. And we're like, ah. And then I'm out. I'm out. I had a, I had a Wednesday. This is one of the few perks of being an executive. I had a Wednesday uh, lunch uh, nine-hole pitch and putt golf game with a couple other executives. And I'm, I'm literally at the golf range across the street from 20th Century Fox. And my phone rings. It's my writer. I'm like, hey, what, what's up? He's like, um, I think our star may be dead. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, I've got a buddy who's a reporter at, at uh, LA Times, and he says uh, Martin Lawrence is in a coma and in the hospital expected to die. I'm like, I'm going to call you back. And went back to my, canceled the golf game, went back to my office, and it turns out that Martin, who apparently was well known to be bipolar, had decided that for a movie where he's 80% of the time in a fat suit, that he needed to lose weight for it. And so he'd put on one of those lined thermal jogging suits and went out on a 105-degree day and jogged himself into a coma. Hmm. And literally, they're like, his core temperature in his brain is 105 degrees. He's going to die. And the next day, they're like, he's not going to die. He's going to be brain damaged the rest of his life. And the day three, they're like, he's not going to be brain damaged, but he's going to have kidney and renal failure the rest of his life. And by day five, they're like, it's a miracle. He's going to be fine. <laughs> but I just remember the, the, the time between getting the call, getting back to my office, telling my boss, getting out, and my boss saying, you need to make a list of other actors. And you're like, oh, right, that's the business we're in. Because if our star dies, we still want our movie to happen. And you have to sit there and go, well, will Will Smith put on a dress? I don't know. You know? So it was one of those things you're just like, yay, our movie's going. Wait, our movie star's dead? What? You know? And, I, I would, I'd love uh, to, to transition in, into Hard Candy, but mm -hmm. we also are, are short on time, mm -hmm. and I want to make sure we get some questions. So Hard Candy is a fascinating story. You should uh, <laughs> definitely uh, watch that movie. Look into that, uh, really interesting, and, and maybe we'll get to it in the Q&A. Mm -hmm. But um, some questions, and make sure that you get the microphone to ask your question as well. So uh, right up here. Uh -huh. Oh, man, OK. Uh, um, no pressure. Right. <laughs> so I've always been curious, like, I've never been to LA, but I want to go there when I graduate. And so like, what, what, is the perspective, what is the perception of UT film students versus some of the like bigger film schools in New York and LA, and do you have any advice for us competing with those students? Uh, this is an ongoing conversation. Uh, I've been having this conversation with Richard and with Tom, and, and everybody here is trying to solve the same problem that you're, or not problem, but solve this question. And you guys, all of us, suffer from lack of proximity, and yet Austin has a cool factor that then makes up for the lack of proximity. Um, we don't have the same profile as USC and UCLA have. Um, they're the nature of their you know, visiting professors, and NYU can have Scorsese drop in for a semester. So it's like there is a sense of they have that proximity to the talent and to the industry. Um, and oftentimes, you know, they're second and third generation you know, industry kids, so there's that too. So I do think you know, we're a little bit of an underdog here. That said, the, the thing that you most need in film school is, is you know, the ability to get your hands on the equipment and to actually make stuff. Uh, and I think Texas has done a brilliant job of, of you know, financing and kind of evening the playing field so that the facilities here and the, and the, the equipment, from what I know, is, is going to be as good as anything you're going to find at, at any of the universities. The thing, again, you're up against is just that sense of, of distance, of how do you get yourself in front of these people. Um, 
I know it's it's in some transition, but the UTLA program, I think I strongly recommend. I've I've spoken at it many times. I actually uh, spent one summer teaching a whole a whole class, which was harder than I thought. Congratulations to you guys. <laughs> um, it's a great chance to get out there and work in the industry because part of it is you have to do an internship. And so not only are you taking, you know, what, 12 hours of class load, but you're also working eight hours to 10 hours a day in an industry you know, company. And it really gives you a sense of, because again, I think no matter how good the university is, until you actually plant your feet in New York or LA and try and work, you don't know what it's going to be like. And so doing the internship takes some of that guesswork and some of that fear factor out of that and they'll let you kind of come back to the university saying, okay, now that I know that, how do I continue to shape my education within the parameters of what the university is giving me? Um, I'm a big believer in the end of the day, Hollywood, people feel like it's built to keep you out. It's not. Hollywood is a meritocracy, but it's a meritocracy in terms of how can you add value to a project. Um, people are interested in you if you add value to something. And so if you're a filmmaker that's got a brilliant short that people can go, wow, I know exactly what the feature-length version of that movie is, then people are going to want to work with you. If you're a producer who's got your hands on really cool material and you can bring it out and people are like, i got to get my hands on that script, so I'm going to make a deal with this young producer, you add value. So it's, it's really figuring out how can I add value so that I'm coming from here to there. That's all people really care about. They don't care about where you went to film school. They just care about what do you bring to the table that gets a movie or a TV show made. And that's you know, a hard answer. But it's also, I think that's kind of the truth, is, is you know, if you've got something that, is, that can be turned into something profitable, people will work with you, no regardless. Another question? Hi, yeah. Um, I'm curious, when you're developing an idea, how do you balance like, what you want to do with the project and how you want to develop it with like, uh, identifying markets where you can profit from it and actually create penetration and get a response from mm -hmm. that project? So how do you kind of like, decide the, that balance? It's a... There's a little bit of marketing speak in your question, which is fine. I don't go quite as far as that because ultimately there's still going to be a, you know, the studio or the distributor is going to make those decisions. Again, once you sell your project, again, as a producer, you're kind of out of that, how the distribution gets handled, unless you sell it independently to like an A24 or somebody that's doing a really small release and you might then have a hand in it. But, you know, the movies I've sold to studios, even Hard Candy, you know, once they paid, you know, nearly $4 million for it, they're like, you run along and we'll make all the decisions. Uh, for better and worse. Um, but I think as a, as a developer, like I said, for instance, this, I had this idea for a, a thriller and set in a world that I hadn't seen a thriller done in. And, and the thriller was fairly by the numbers, but set in a world where I'm like, okay, that's cool. It's a world we haven't seen on film, and let's do that. And I couldn't get ready to come to it. And then two years ago, I was reading about how that world is becoming huge in the Chinese economy. Mm. And I realized taking that same idea and moving it into a Chinese-American co-production where the leads are now Americans in China and the co-leads are all Chinese, um, suddenly made that idea makeable for everybody because everybody in town is trying to figure out how to get in business as a Chinese co-production. And so it took an idea that I knew was a good idea, but I couldn't quite get anybody interested in it, to now when I go to the agency meetings, they're like, oh my god, I want to read that script as soon as you have it. So the downside was the first draft of that script came in mezzo-mezzo, and so we're trying to work it. Bless you. <laughs> um, but it was that sense of, okay, what will give this penetration in the marketplace is figuring out, well, what are they looking for? And the Chinese-American co-production was an answer to it. And right now, that's an answer to a lot of things. Okay, there's another project I've got that we're like, should we take the lead character who's American and make the lead character Chinese and do it as a, as a co-production you know, and do some version of that? Because it's just you can't deny the power of that marketplace right now. 
So that's always fun. But there's you know a lot of other ways to solve it, but that's just one example. Great. Next question. Um, what's the best way for like a writer director to get their projects made, especially if they're going out to like LA for the first time? Um, man, there's no easy answer to that. I think the best way to get something made is still to have it to be something that you can make for a number. Like Hard Candy for me came about, I was leaving my job as an executive. I'd been an executive for 10 years and worked my way up to like you know, the senior VP kind of status and I was giving it all up. And so part of my thinking was I want to have at least one project because I knew how to make studio movies, but studio movies are on their own pace. And I was like, I need to have one project that I can finance it on my credit cards and I can shoot it in my own house. And the Hard Candy, the idea, once I had the idea, I literally brought the writer to my house and we mapped out, okay, how would we shoot this in my house? Um, and I remember when the draft came in, I gave it to my wife, and she's like, oh, shit, you're gonna <laughs> shoot this in our house, aren't you? Um, and fortunately, our director was like, no, no, I like to shoot on super long lenses when I need a huge amount of light, so I gotta be able to pour the, tear the roof off, and we're like, we're gonna stage, okay, stage. But the idea was, I gotta have something that I can control where I know, okay, I can make this for a number. And I think the thing that you guys now have going for you is that the cost of filmmaking have drastically dropped, and there are films getting you know, VOD releases that are shot on iPhones. I wouldn't recommend it, but it can be done. I mean, Tangerine, they did a great job telling a narrative and shooting the entire thing on an iPhone. Um, so I think as a writer-director, it becomes that thing of like, how can I make something that nobody can say no to? And so part of that is, is figuring out what's the scope of my ambition, and do I need to make that, do I need to make a really, really cool independent movie that breaks out so then I can make that next thing? Um, versus I've got a $30 million movie and I gotta figure out how to convince people to let me do it, that's a lot harder to do. Yeah, but I think you know, we're seeing now, you can make great movies for you know, under $100,000. Know, I, I exec produced one movie for 75,000 bucks that the writer-director paid for, and it turned out, and it was, you know, it's a character-driven drama, but it was a great script and got great performances and went the festival route and had a little sale. So, and it's set up, he just did a Blumhouse movie, he's about to do another one for them, and then he and I have got his like, third or fourth movie we'll do together. So it's always, there's no one answer for that, but I think it's always, as a, as a new person, it's either you've gotta have the most brilliant script ever that's a $30 million script, and then you've gotta get the right producers behind it that can say, yes, first time filmmaker, but we're gonna back him, and we're gonna build this package around it, or you scale your ambitions down and say, what can I do that's my vision, but yet still feels makeable and can create a splash? Because the truth is, you know, movies aren't memorable because of their budgets. You know, they're memorable because of the stories and the way they're told, and the performances. So that's the, I think people get confused with like big budget is where you can make a splash and that's not true. Um, you mentioned that every producer approaches it differently and it seems like for you a very important thing from your answers is being tied to concept development. Mm -hmm. So, and I also really, it resonates with me a great deal, this, this uh, metaphor of pushing the boulder up the hill. I don't know why nobody's named their company Sisyphus Productions. <laughs> yeah. It's probably too on the nose, and it's probably just too... No, 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 I got that it. patented. No one oh, else can it. do that now. No, but uh, really, you know, insofar as that idea is the boulder, how do you choose the boulder? And for you, that's a very personal question uh -huh. for you, and, um, you know, do you look for just a kernel uh, that you can pop into the popcorn, or does there have to be, you know, an overarching story you're interested in with these ideas or somewhere in between? It's a little bit of everything. It's, it's, you know, in a perfect world, you get handed that American beauty, and then you're like, wow, let's shoot that. And, and I will say, Hard Candy, when I had the idea, I was like, okay, it's two people in a house, I gotta find a playwright, because a playwright is, can, can write character, not, they're not thinking of plot, and I knew one playwright, and I, I pitched him the idea, and I just remember he was like, um, yeah, let me get back to you. I'm like, okay, I gotta find more playwrights. 
Um, and he called me the next day. He's like, I can't stop thinking about this. I think I want to do it. And so, but then was three months of us figuring out, okay, well, now it's two people in the house. What is that? How do we tell that story and keep it interesting? And after we finished, he's like, okay, I think I got it. I'm going to go write it. And his first draft was so fantastic. I think his first draft was probably 90% of what ended up in the movie. And that just doesn't happen. You know, usually your first draft, you're like, okay, I can see the movie. We've got a lot of work to do, but we know at least where we're going. All right. Um, and so every now and then you get something that lands in your lap like that that's great. Even though it was already you know, an idea and three months of work, it still landed in your lap as like, hey, this is something we can make. Everybody works differently. It's, it's you know, how your process is, what you find. For some people, it's I got to read the whole script before I know if I like it at all. And some people can look at something and go, hey, I saw this foreign film, and that's a TV show, and I'm going to get the rights, and let's go do it. So it just depends on you know, how your mind works and, and kind of where you pull from. It's you know, the, the beauty of having been a bookworm as a child and spent all those hours inside is that I have a lot of stuff. Of like I've optioned things that I'm like, I read that in fourth grade. That was really good. I should go find out if the rights are available. You know, so it's stuff like that of like two sci-fi stories that I've set up were things I read fourth, fifth, sixth grade. So keep your eyes open. Yeah. I think I can speak for everyone and, and say uh, a huge thank you to David for being oh, here today. Thank you, guys. Thanks for listening to another Media Industry Conversation. This has been a production of the Department of Radio, Television, and Film in the Moody College of Communication at the University of Texas at Austin. For more information, visit rtf.utexas.edu mic. This series was made possible by the work of Dr. Elisa Perrin and Cindy McCreary, with the assistance of Tim Piper and Laura Felshow and our videographer, Eric Apollo. The program was produced and edited by me, Kyle Rather. We hope you join us next time for another media industry conversation. Get along, get along, little dopey, get along.